Welcome to this week's episode of Your Week with St. Luke's. We're so glad you've turned into our podcast as we have uh, jumped into week three, as we look at the characters of David's story, which are in particular the caregiver and the protector of Jonathan and Michal. Now, most of us look at Jonathan and David's relationship as the love interest of, of them being the best of friends, but there is a particular role he plays and Michal, his wife, plays to protect and watch over David. David so that David can move into his life of kingship. So we're going to be talking about that and digging in deeper of what roles those people play in our lives. So let's get started with our lecture with Dr. Ryan. Hello, friends, and welcome back to this course on David. I'm Ryan Filio, and I teach Old Testament here at Candler School of Theology. This is week three of a six-week course, and as you know already from previous weeks, our angle into the story on David is to consider him in relationship to the various supporting characters in his story. And we've done that already by looking at two archetypal character roles that we find not only in the story of David, but also in film and literature more broadly. In week one, we looked at what we called the harbinger or the herald, those figures that look forward and point in the direction of what is to come in the narrative. And here in the story of David, that those roles were played by both Hannah and her son, Samuel. And then in week two, we looked at the role of the antagonizer, this person who really enters into conflict with the protagonist and provokes and prods and annoys and disturbs them in ways that can reveal the character's uh, personality type and characteristics. And in week two, we considered the antagonizer in the form of Goliath, that iconic Philistine figure, but also King Saul, David's most direct rival and the king that he would replace. Well, we're going to continue a similar look this week as we turn to another type of standard stock character in the story, and that's that of a caregiver or a provider. Now, sometimes caregivers and providers are referred to as sidekicks or best friends, and that sort of works and it sort of doesn't work. But in either case, these sorts of characters, the caregivers, find themselves in close relationship with the protagonist. They are there as a counselor, as a friend, as a support system. You might think of Ron and Hermione, or maybe even Hagrid from uh, the story of Harry Potter, or you might think of Sam and Pippin and Mary uh, to Frodo in the story of the Lord of the Rings. Now, these caretakers in their own right are fascinating characters, but they and they play a key role in how the story plays out, but they are not the center of attention in the same way that the protagonist is. And yet, at the same time, the protagonist would not find him or herself where they are without the caregiver. So we're going to look at this interesting, uh, these interesting figures of caregivers and how they play a role in David's story. And the two figures we'll look at in this lecture is Jonathan and McCall. Now, what's really interesting about these two figures from the start is not only that they are siblings, McCall is Jonathan's sister, but that both of them are children of Saul. And so this is a really interesting dynamic that we want to dig into, the fact that David's chief caregivers are kids of his greatest antagonizer, Saul. So there's a fascinating family system going on here and how David becomes enmeshed in all of that. 
Now, before we get to Jonathan and McCall, I want to set the stage a little bit by looking backward and really looking at a series of texts that we skipped over last week when we were considering the story of Goliath. If you remember, we went from David being anointed in 1 Samuel 16, 13, and we skipped all the way forward to the beginning of chapter 17. And not without good reason, if you read from 16, 13, and you skip over to 17.1, where the story of Goliath begins, the narrative flows seamlessly. But what we didn't mention then is that we actually skipped 10 verses. Uh, 1 Samuel 16.14-23 contains sort of a self-contained narrative that doesn't quite fit into the flow of the story. For instance, in chapter 17, we know that David is a shepherd, which of course we already knew about him, and he's shuttling food and supplies from the shepherd's field to the front lines of the battle. And when he first encounters Saul in the story of Goliath, they had never met before. David is a new figure to Saul, and Saul is new to David. But what's interesting is that when we turn back to chapter 16 and we read 14 to 23, those verses we skipped over, it turns out that David and Saul already know each other and, in fact, are already in close relationship to one another. What this suggests is that we're finding one of those scenes in the text. That is, when two traditions are sort of smushed together and there's a little bit of unevenness in terms of how they fit. So let's take a look at these verses that we've skipped. 1614 begins with a really weird line. It says that an evil spirit from the Lord had disturbed Saul. Now, what does this mean that an evil spirit of the Lord disturbed Saul? Well, two things to note about this passage. First of all, we always must remember that when it comes to things like medicine and science, the biblical writers, just like other people in the ancient world, didn't have a clear sense of what we might call secondary causes. Things like viruses and disease and chemical imbalances and even things like gravity. They understood that God was sovereign and so that everything that happened in the world was a direct result of God's will and activity in the world. They didn't have a sense that diseases or viruses can cause people to get sick. If someone got sick, they thought that God was directly responsible for it. So when we encounter these sort of statements that God caused an evil spirit to torment Saul, we need to filter it through our modern lenses where we understand that there are secondary causes in the world. This is not to say that God isn't involved, but there are these intervening causes that might be the more primary uh, factor in bringing about a specific condition. So in the case of Saul, we might wonder whether it's depression or a traumatic experience or some sort of other psychological ailment that has left Saul in this position. Now, the second thing to note about this verse is that the word that's translated as evil here in the NRSV, ra'ah in Hebrew, can also mean troubling. And I think this would be a better translation given the context. It's not that an evil spirit uh, is inflicting small Saul, but that a troubling spirit, that is a spirit that causes Saul to be troubled in his soul. And indeed, Saul is definitely a troubled character throughout this whole narrative. Now, in either case, Saul is facing this psychological uh, experience of, of either depression or trauma. His court officials recognize it, and they have a solution. They want to bring in a great musician who will play music in order to soothe Saul. So they look around in search of a great, someone who was good at playing the lyre. Now, I don't mean L-I-A-R, the lyre, but rather the L-Y-R-E type, the musical instrument. And lo and behold, who's good at playing? the lyre, the L-Y-R-E, 
none other than David, the shepherd boy, the a son of Jesse. So they hear of David's great musical talent and they bring him into the court. He plays the music and it soothes Saul. Now, this is an interesting little detail of the story, in part because in later Christian tradition, we remember David as this great musician. As you can see here on the screen, there are so many different artistic representations of David where he's de depicted with a lyre or a harp, and he's associated with music so often. But what's interesting is that in the biblical account, it's only here that it's said that David is associated with music or good at music. Nowhere uh, after David has become king, it, does it ever say that David is associated with music or playing the lyre or the harp. And so these images, some of which show David with a crown on the head, and playing the harp or the lyre at the same time are a little bit biblically inaccurate because we never get this portrait. We never see David engaged in music once he is a king. Now, in any case, uh, David's music has a good effect on Saul. As I said, it does soothe him, but then we read further about the effects. This is 1 Samuel 16, 21 to 22. It says, and David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. Now, at this point in the story, we don't know if Saul knew that David had been anointed as his replacement. We haven't been able to connect those dots yet that scripture doesn't tell us. But what's clear from 16, 21 and 22 is that Saul did not see David as a threat because you don't make someone who you see as a threat your armor bearer, right? That that would be a dangerous thing to do, to place someone you thought as a threat in control of your armor. So we know that uh, Saul doesn't see David as a threat. And further, the text tell us that Saul loves David. So there's a deep irony here that while Saul becomes David's chief antagonizer later in the story, here at the beginning, David is actually Saul's caregiver and protector. This makes the fissure that results in the relationship between these two all the more heartbreaking. In either case, we can infer that it is from this experience in Saul's court that David comes to be acquainted with Saul's children, two of whom become important caregivers in the rest of the story. So let's look at those two caregivers and who are, uh, who are introduced Excuse me, in chapter 18. The first is Jonathan. Let's read verses 1 through 4 in chapter 18. When David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was bound to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that he was wearing and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Let's look closely at some of this language. The word for bound, which we encounter very early on in these verses, it's in yellow on your screen, in its most literal sense, can be used to describe the tying together or the intertwining of strands of a thread. Now, when used in reference to a human relationship, it refers to close devotion and companionship, often with a connotation of a political alliance. This political connotation seems to be at play here in this verse, because in verse three, we see on top of it that it uses the language of covenant uh, or berit, 
uh, this word is highlighted in orange on your screen. We often think of the idea of covenant in very theological terms, but we must remember that in the ancient Near Eastern word, the idea of a covenant was well-known and active outside of religious circles. It was used to describe the treaties made between two political parties. And I think this is an important background for understanding what we read in verse 4. What does it mean that Jonathan gave his robe and his weapons and his belt to David? Well, one way of understanding this imagery is that Jonathan was disarming himself and sort of disrobing himself before David as an act of vulnerability, as saying, David, you are not a threat, and I am willing to lay down my arms. As the heir to Saul's throne, I am willing to lay down my arms before you, even though you are my father's successor. So that might be one way of understanding the imagery. Another way of understanding it uh, is to keep in mind that Jonathan was Saul's eldest son, and thus he was heir apparent to the throne. The robe and the arms symbolize this position. So in giving his robe and his arms to David, Jonathan is, in effect, recognizing that David is the true heir apparent to the throne, not him. He's saying, look, David, I see that God has anointed you, not me, as the heir apparent to Saul's crown. Now, the other word I want to highlight here in these four verses is this word love, which is used twice in the series of the first few verses. In Greek, you might have heard that there are three different Greek words for love. There's eros, which is romantic love. There's phileo, which is brotherly love. And then there's agape, which is divine love. Well, unfortunately, Hebrew does not have three different words for love, to describe the different types of love. It uses one word, ahav, to describe all types of love. So we need to infer from context what type of love the biblical author imagined between Jonathan and David. Well, most people would think that it means brotherly love, and that's a really good uh, guess. There'd be good reason to support that in that Jonathan and David have a close companionship uh, that might well be described in terms of that phileo love, brotherly love that we know of. Um, but I want to draw your attention to another text, a text that comes only in the first chapter of Second Samuel that might give us a different perspective on the type of love present. It's 2 Samuel 1.26. It's the lament that David gives when he finds out that Jonathan has died. He says this, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Greatly beloved were you to me. Your love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. David says that Jonathan's love surpassed the love he received from any woman. Now, some scholars based on this description have suggested that this might then imply some sort of intimacy, maybe even sexual intimacy between David and Jonathan. Now, the text is far from clear that this would have been the case, uh, but I think it's important that at least we leave open that possibility, or at least that we understand the intimacy between David and Saul as being highly affectionate, maybe uh, sexual or not, we don't know, but there is a closeness and an intimacy between these two such that David can say that the type of love Jonathan expressed to him surpassed the love he received from any woman. Now, however we uh, describe or or think about the type of love that Jonathan expresses to David, there's two takeaways here that I want you to keep in mind. The first, and this is really odd, that nowhere in 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel does it ever say that David loved 
Jonathan. It's always said in the reverse. Jonathan is always the subject of the verb love, and David is always the object of the verb love. Does that mean that David doesn't love Jonathan back? I don't think so, but it is interesting that the text frames the relationship from Jonathan's perspective. Jonathan is the one who expresses love. Jonathan is the caregiver and the protector, not the other way around with David. The second thing I want to suggest is that the great extent of God of Jonathan's love, I think, it, we can understand as the human embodiment of God's commitment and love to David. That is, God's fidelity to David, God's covenant with David is most uh, concretely understood and expressed in the sort of love that Jonathan has for David. So his character in some ways, as a caregiver, Jonathan sort of mimics or mirrors the way in which God is a caregiver and protector for David. And maybe we can understand then God as the ultimate caregiver and protector for David. And it's only uh, through Jonathan that we come to understand the extent to which God has cared for and loved David in these texts. Now, let's move from Jonathan to his sister, to this figure, Michal. Uh, and we first get introduced to her in 1820, where we hear that Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. And Saul was told, and the thing pleased him. So catch this now. We have two sons, uh, two, excuse me, two children of Saul, one a daughter, one um, a boy, and both love David. In the case of Michal loving David, it says that Saul is pleased. Now, why would Saul be pleased that his daughter loved David? Well, one possibility is that he's just a nice guy. He was happy for Michal, and he was very pleased about it. Um, another possibility, a little darker, is that this sort of reflects that famous adage, keep your friends close, but keep your enemies closer. Maybe Saul is thinking, if we can bring David into the family as a son-in-law, I can keep a closer eye on him uh, as my chief enemy. Or uh, another possibility actually emerges just a few verses later, and it's a little bit more sinister. Listen to verse 21. Saul thought to himself, let me give McCall to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. This is what Saul is cooking up. He says, look, David, instead of offering a marriage present or price for my daughter, I want you to go out and slay 100 Philistines. And Saul has to be thinking in the back of his mind, if David is crazy enough to do this, there's no way he's coming back alive. Sure, he killed Goliath, that one Philistine, but there's no way he's going to be able to kill a hundred Philistines. So Saul wants David killed, but he's going to let the Philistines do the dirty work. In some ways, this foreshadows what David would one day do with Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba. He wants him killed, but instead of doing the dirty work himself, he exposes Uriah on the front lines and allows uh, the enemy to kill him instead. Well, in either case, Saul's plan doesn't work because sure enough, David does come back. He's not only killed 100 Philistines, he's killed 200 Philistines. And so Saul is forced to give Bacall to him in marriage. And now Saul has, as a son-in-law, his chief rival. In the chapters that follow, especially in chapter 19, what we begin to see is that, that both McCall and Jonathan work to protect David against Saul's plot to kill him. We see this especially in two parallel uh, short texts in chapter 19. Um, verses 1 and 2 says, Saul spoke with his son Jonathan and with all of his servants about killing David, but 
Saul's son, Jonathan, took great delight in David. And the rest of the narrative then goes on to describe how Jonathan intervenes to save David. At the end of that little story, we hear uh, the, the attention turns to McCall, and the narrative is strangely similar. Similar. Saul, in verse 11, sends messengers to David's house to keep watch over him, planning to kill him in the morning. But David's wife, McCall, told him, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So McCall let David down through the window. He fled away and escaped. Saul sent messengers to David's house to keep watch over him, planning to kill him in the morning. David's wife, McCall, told him, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. All of this enrages Saul. And look at his response to Jonathan in chapter 20, after yet another effort by his son to care for David. Here's chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives upon the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. This begins with a curse. Listen to that phrase, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. It sounds like I'm saying a curse out loud. Um, my son would call this a cuss battle. Uh, so he says these harsh words and, and notice how Saul is framing the matter. Uh, as he goes on, he's basically saying, look, it's either me or David. There's no room for loyalty to Saul and friendship with David, not in the way that Saul sees it. It's so much so that I think what Saul is saying is that if you stay in relationship with David, you will never be established as king. Saul is essentially disowning his son. He's saying, look, you are not fit to inherit my kingdom. If you back that guy, then you never will be king this kingship will skip over you and my rival will take on the throne. This is a really powerful moment, I think both for Saul and for Jonathan. And during our discussion, I wanna invite you into thinking about how this lands for each of these figures. So read from the vantage point of Jonathan, what was the cost of loving David? What did Jonathan have to give up? And what would that have meant to him uh, to love David in the midst of this conflict between his father and his best friend? Or read from the perspective of Saul, what would it have been like to not only be rejected as king, but to know that your two children are in love with the very person who's going to replace you? These are difficult emotional uh, circumstances for these figures to find themselves in. And we want to think more about what that was like and how that might map onto our own experiences with characters in our own lives. Now, there are two final texts I want to put before you before we bring this lecture to a close. The first is, second, is to return to 2 Samuel chapter 1. In the beginning of that chapter, we learn that a courier from Saul's camp comes to David and he reports that both Saul and his son Jonathan had been killed in the battlefield. And he actually hands over the crown to David. Now, at this point, David takes off uh, his outer clothes. He tears them and all the men who were with him did the same. And they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and for his son Jonathan. Now, it probably would make sense to us that David would lament the death of Jonathan, this man who loved him with a love that surpassed that of any woman. But what's striking, and maybe even a little bit odd, is that David also laments for Saul. 
the very person who sought to kill him on numerous occasions. David doesn't just weep for Jonathan, his friend. He weeps for Saul, his enemy. Listen to verses 22 to 25, which is part of the lament that David offers. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, nor the sword of Saul return empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you with crimson in luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. It's a heart-wrenching lament that, that looks back favorably on both the life of Jonathan and the life of Saul. And what I'm curious about, and what I'm going to invite you to talk about in discussion, is what does it say about David that he can utter this lament, not only on behalf of his best friend, but also his chief antagonizer? Now, the second and final text that I want to think about with you comes a few chapters later. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 9. In verse 3 of that chapter, David is inquiring among his officials whether there's anyone left from the line of Jonathan. Is there anyone left of Jonathan's descendants? Remember, Jonathan dies at the very end of 1 Samuel, and David now is inquiring about his family. And it turns out there is someone left. For you see, Jonathan had a son, a boy named Mephibosheth, who uh, had an accident when he was little and was crippled. And David hears that this boy, Mephibosheth, is still alive, and he inquires after him. And, and, and David sends for him and says this in verse 7, Do not be afraid, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul, and you yourself shall eat at my table always. That word for kindness that we encounter here is that Hebrew word chesed, which refers to covenant loyalty. And friends, what I think we see happening here is that David is showing to Mephibosheth what Jonathan had showed to him. Both are showing this, this, this relentless loyalty in love, in relationship. Uh, in fact, David opens up his table to Mephibosheth. And I want to suggest that this is the high point of David's leadership. He uses his royal power and prerogative to open the table, to reach out into the margins, to bring in those people you would least likely expect to find at the king's table. It's a radical and beautiful act of inclusion on David's part. It's a way he's returning the caregiving that Jonathan had given him, and he's passing it along to now Jonathan's son, a boy still in need of care. What we see here is that David would not be where he is as a king without caretakers along the way. And at his best, David embraces his role as a caretaker and provider, especially for the most vulnerable. This makes me think all the way to the New Testament in a parable that Luke tells, or that Jesus tells in Luke 14, 12 through 13. It's the parable, uh, it's part of the parable of the banquet. And here's what we hear in Luke 14, 12 through 13. Jesus also said to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they may invite you 
in return, and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. What I want to suggest is that in some measure, we see David doing this here in 2 Samuel 9. By inviting Mephibosheth to his table, he's inviting the least expected to be a close part of the king's table and the king's torch court. This in some ways uh, embodies the very thing that Hannah prayed about in the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 2, when she imagines this kingdom turns on its head and the poor being raised up and the powerful being brought low. In bringing Mephibosheth to the table, I think David is embodying God's message of inclusion in this inverted kingdom where things begin to be oriented around where God sees importance and value and not where the world sees importance and value. So friends, that brings us to a conclusion of our third lecture. Now we're going to turn it back to you and we're going to have a facilitated discussion about the various elements of this story. Thanks so much, everyone, and we'll see you again next week. Now we have the opportunity to listen to our office hours as Dr. E.B. and Dr. Ryan are joined by Pastor Jad. As they talk about the caregiver protector characters in our life, we really get to hear about Jad's story um, and who he is and, and how people have come into his life as a protector and caregiver and shown him the gifts of Jesus. So let's listen. Well, grace and peace, everyone, and uh, welcome to uh, your week uh, with St. Luke's and our office hours time together. Uh, again, we have uh, Dr. Eby and Dr. Ryan here with us to talk a little bit more uh, about the story of David and these characters involved uh, in his story and how it uh, speaks to our story. And uh, today we're talking about caregivers and protectors and who they are in David's life and who they are in our life. So... Yeah. Um, Great, Chad. It's great being with you and EB again, being back in conversation with you. And I love this week. This is week three of our study, and we get to focus on two characters, Jonathan and his sister, Michal, both of whom are uh, children of Saul and that David is very close to. But before we get to them, I'm curious, just from, you know, this idea of a caregiver or protector is very prominent in film and literature. So it's not just a David thing. So I'm just curious, who are some of your favorite caregivers and uh, protectors from movies, literature, right? Well, I mean, St. Lucas won't be surprised if I talked about like Star Wars. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> okay. okay. I think of Chewie to, to uh-huh. Han, right? Um, he, he gives him guidance. We don't know what he's saying, but we infer that he's helping him out. He's got his back. He's, he's supporting him along the way. He's, he's taking care of him. He's protecting him. Uh, that's one I can think of right away. Uh, I think about Gandalf, mm. uh, in, uh, especially in The Hobbit. Yeah. Um, more so than the Lord of the Rings, he always shows up at the moment of crisis. Like, I love that he lets him get into crisis a little mm. bit, but he usually shows up to save the day at the last minute, kind of the deus ex machina, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he's he's there when you really need him to be there. Yeah. And that's that's a good caretaker. Yeah, it kind of reminds me, I was going to say, for me, like Hagrid. Now, it could be Hermione, too, or maybe Ron, but Hagrid, to me, is that protector, caregiver, sort of like Gandalf, in that uh, they appear at the right moment. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't solve all the problems, but they are that push forward through crisis and conflict. Or they're the refuge. Like, Mm -hmm. they provide just just a pause. Yeah. Yeah. Samwise does a little bit of that, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's encouraging him, but he's also just behind him, just taking care of the other little things that he needs to to make it through the journey. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's, it's interesting how uh, these this brother and sister Jonathan and McCall they they take on that role in some different ways uh, in First Samuel in the story of David. 
Yeah, that's right. And we get Jonathan very early on in the story, really right as the conflict with Saul is beginning and beginning to bubble to the surface, we get introduced to Jonathan. He's right there in 1 Samuel 18. And it begins by describing this really close bond. It says that Jonathan loved David and that there's this close affection and affiliation of those two. And that makes a big difference in the story. Yeah, there's there's a lot of intimacy there in, in that relationship, but also with Jonathan with McCall. There's 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 something about maybe it's David that draws these caregivers uh, to him um, to support him, to love him in ways that other people can't. And I think that's what a what a good caregiver does is supports you in ways that other people just aren't able to do. So, yeah, I um I heard this great sermon once, and someone said, "Do you know who a, a, a mother's favorite child is?" It's whatever child needs her most right then. Uh, And I sort of feel like that, that maybe it's David's need that draws these people to him. And that makes people love him because he needs people to love him. You know, he's been tasked with something really monumental and has some pretty big adversaries. Uh, and so he needs these people to shepherd him as much as he shepherds, you know, actual sheep and other people. Right. So. And interestingly, even though we know about David's family, uh, we know about his dad, Jesse, and he has seven brothers, um, they never reappear in this story. Right. So it's almost as if Jonathan and McCall are becoming David's new family. They are yeah. filling the role of the family uh, when we don't know what happens to David's kind of biological family, but they drop out of the story. And, and it's these others that have to occupy that space. I never thought about it that way, that we don't see Jesse, who's such a major figure in building up to David, but they're just all gone. That's right. And But it's great that these caregivers fill in fill in that space in yeah. that role. But this is also the incredibly complicated thing about this story, is that his caregivers are the children of his antagonist, right? Yeah. right? I mean, just yeah. think about the, the complex family systems at play in, in, in this relationship. It's twisted, right? And, and it's, it's part of their love for him is what causes this, this tension with Saul. It's, it's because of that love and his place and role uh, in, in Saul's court. Yeah, Because if you think of it from Saul's perspective, I, I mean, one can imagine Saul feeling like it's either me or him. Like if you back this other person, if you love this other person, you are backing my replacement, right. mm-hmm. this person that I'm in tension with. And I can imagine just sort of the heartbreak of that for Saul to see his children loving the person who will replace him as king. Such a threat. Yeah, that's really difficult. Yeah. And and this role of caretaker is it's not just a, a giving love and receiving love because the text doesn't say how David feels about Jonathan. Mm-hmm. All we get is that Jonathan was bound to David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul and makes the covenant with David, but we don't hear what David says. And so it's really interesting. And we we actually see this play out in the story that McCall loves David and she gives up things for David. And then when push comes to shove in 2 Samuel, David isn't always reciprocal in mm-hmm. showing her that same audacious, self-sacrificing right. love. And yeah. so um, these caretakers, they they give this love often at their own expense. Right. And yeah. literally Jonathan dies in yes. battle. Um, no, not against David per se, but he D- Jonathan is caught up in this broader conflict uh, with between his dad and this man that he loves. Um, mm-hmm. And so just what is the cost for Jonathan? What's the cost in Jonathan's own family? You know, if if his dad perceives it as it's either me or him, in going with David, 
it's almost as if Jonathan is sort of being disinherited or, or disowned by mm. his father and saying mm-hmm. like, okay, you've made your choice. Now mm. that's your family. It sends him on a whole new trajectory. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Now, I, oh, go, go ahead, Jed. I was going to say, I just think about uh, friends in St. Lucas and, and, and people who I, I get to work with and be around who have something happen in their life and, and they're called to a place of being a caregiver and it sends their whole life in a new trajectory. Uh, it defines them in all kinds of new mm-hmm. ways that they weren't expecting. Some of them are, are tragic and some of them turn out to be great blessings and opportunities for a different life. Um, but I think there's a lot we can relate to in that, mm-hmm. what Jonathan is to David. Yeah, but there's a cost in that caregiving too. You know, yeah. it's a beautifully redemptive thing or loving thing, compassionate thing, but, you know, there's real loss for Jonathan in it. Isn't that how it is when we enter into that sort of caregiving relationship, whether with it's an aging parent whether with its child or whatever this circumstance, there's beauty in it, but there's also loss. Yeah, yeah. Which is, uh, as a segue to that, you know, there's we're mostly dwelling on David's story as it comes to us in First and Second Samuel. That's the fullest expression of David's story. But there's another telling of David's story. It's later in a book called First Chronicles, and it's shorter. It's concise. It's only uh, about twenty chapters. It's First Chronicles ten to twenty nine. And in that retelling of the David story, Jonathan is not mentioned. And so my question is, what is David without Jonathan? How, do we, how does our understanding of him change if Jonathan is not part of the story? Yeah, I mean, I think he's more of a two-dimensional. He's not a full character. He's not a full person. Um, you don't have that, that tension and that drive. You don't um, have that person who's helping him uh, escape and get, get out of Saul's clinches. And, um, so he's not a, just not a full rounded character. You're missing something. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that we, we have been really focusing on on how ambiguous David is and how flawed a character he is. But I also think that we would miss out on, on what the beauty of David is that obviously attracts this kind of wholehearted mm-hmm. devotion. Um, and I, I think that... Um, it makes me think about the Wizard of Oz when at the end the, the Tin Man is told that the best indication of you is how much you're loved by these other people. And yeah. it's not always yeah. about the love that, yeah. that you give, but the ref- you reflect the love that you're given. Yeah. And so I, I feel like knowing how devoted Jonathan is and that he's lavished this love on David, it makes me even more kindly disposed like to think – he must have seen something in David that was lovable, that was lovely. And even when we lose sight of it, when David does really bad things, sometimes it's, it's helpful to be reminded that there are lovable things about people, even when they have done really terrible things. Yeah. 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 That's a great way of putting it. And I think part of the traps for us in American Christianity is that we sort of buy into this, this myth, this American myth around you know, the self-made man or woman, this someone who right. pulls themselves up yeah. by their bootstraps and like doesn't need other people. And I think Chronicles can push us in that direction because it mm-hmm. elides uh, Jonathan and McCall, the very people he needs. And Samuel's not there either, by the way. And so David is then this sort of like self-made king and we need the David who needs other people, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, if if David didn't have McCall, like putting the the dummy in the bed to right. trick yeah. her dad, yeah. <laughs> I, we wouldn't Such have the rest drama. of the David story. He would yeah. be dead, right. you know. So it's yeah. you're right. Like we we wouldn't even have that without these supporting characters. And how relatable is David if David's just Superman, right? This this untouchable That's character right. in, in the story of life and faith. I can't be like that. I can't relate to that. 
uh, because I do have needs. I need caregivers. Right. I need to be someone who cares for other people as well. And uh, you can see that in in the first uh, Samuel and second Samuel depiction of David. Yeah. Much more relatable. You know, one of the things uh, in thinking about Jonathan and the nature of the relationship, one possibility is that one way to understand Jonathan is that he's the human embodiment of God's love mm. for David. He is sort of manifests God's relentless commitment. The Hebrew word is chesed, this, this relentless covenant loyalty, and that Jonathan manifests that. Um, so I'm wondering, this is more of a personal question, but have you encountered people in life who you would say something similar about, that they have manifested for you God's love and commitment in, in a real earthly, uh, clear way? Well, first of all, to talk about Hesed, you're you're like right in Jen's wheelhouse, right? <laughs> that this is uh, important uh, for her and and her theological drive uh, in leading our congregation. Um, but I, I think of uh, of my spouse Shelly, who's who's also a pastor, and um, and six years ago was diagnosed um, with cancer, uh. and still was able to be such a strength and support for our kids. Yeah. So. Wow. Yeah. Same. I I have to acknowledge my husband has mm. been this. Um, the fact that uh, I've been in graduate school for more than a decade. <laughs> in perpetuity, um, right? Now. But a part of the story that a lot of people don't know is that I, I was, um, when I first went to seminary, I was recovering from really severe uh, postpartum depression. Mm. And I was really wrestling with what to do mm. to get out of the hole. And something I had really been thinking about and wanting to do was go to seminary. And I, I didn't know if I could. Mm. And one day I get a call from the seminary and they're like, we know you're interested in us. We would love to talk to you. And I'm like, how wow. do these people know this? And my husband had hacked into my email and sent them an email from my account saying, I want to go to seminary. I want to learn these wow. these things. Right. And um, and so when people when – and at first I thought, God must have told them. Well, no, it was my husband. <laughs> That's um, awesome. But I, what a great way of seeing how God cares for us through other people mm -hmm. who are willing to um, – my husband signed up for – you know, years of doing more housework <laughs> right. and having way more responsibility um, so that I could do things like being here today, yeah, recording right. this podcast, yeah, you know, but yeah. um, it's that self-sacrifice. Um, and I feel like that's such a great picture of God's God's care for us yeah. through each other. Yeah. And it becomes so tangible then yeah. in these relationships. And that's why we need to name these figures in our life and not to leave them out of the story as Chronicles does, but right. to say, no, they we wouldn't be here of course, yes, without God, but we wouldn't be here without these people who have made God's love and kindness clear and tangible in our life. It's a really beautiful part of the story, I think. And it, it speaks to a certain vulnerability that David yeah. needed these other people. Right. Uh, and it's hard, though, for us at times to name that we need other people because mm -hmm. it, it, feels, it feels vulnerable. And vulnerability is a really hard thing. Uh, to name in our lives. It is. And I got a little vulnerable, vulnerable there and I got too emotional to fully explain what Shelly was because I didn't think I would talk about it. So I would want to kind of yeah, give please. a full picture to it of that course. that uh, in the midst of that struggle of cancer and surgeries that she still um, gave all of her time and energy she was capable of doing and still does to to our family and yeah. to what, what it means to be whole and full. And seeing that strength in her through that journey is what caused me to see how great of a caregiver she is. But mm -hmm. I just got too emotional <laughs> for Okay. I didn't know I was going to say this. So, Thank you for sharing this. but I, I think that's that. That's just part of seeing 
again, like your husband, yeah. going to an extra effort that, that, that for somebody else might not, oh, that's kind of strange. You're kind of hacking your, your wife's email. <laughs> no, no, no. I generally recommend that. Right, yeah, exactly. not, I, know, is, I know your heart. Right. Yeah. I know your desire. I know what God's doing in your life. And, and nothing's going to stop me in supporting you in right. that. And, and, um, and that's, 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 I think, what we see within Jonathan and McCall, that, um, that uh, they, they know this heart that, that um, David has for God and that God has for David, and they're going to do all they can to support him through it. Yeah. And, you know, one part of the story, because um, you referenced the – so both Jonathan and McCall intervene mm-hmm. in various circumstances. This is First Samuel 19. They both intervene basically to save David's life. Now, what's not incredibly clear from the text is whether David knows, mm. right? And so one wonders, we know as readers what Michal has done or what Jonathan has done, but does David know? And and that's another, another element to this, like that sometimes our caregivers are working in ways we aren't aware of. And that's maybe the most beautiful part of them is the things we can name than the things that we probably will never know and that they've done in secret and behind the scenes to, to help us be who we are. Yeah. Because it's not about the accolades. It's, it's about yeah. the outcome. It's about the person that we're caring for and we're supporting. That's right. Um, I want to do one more element to this story because I want to fast forward chapter-wise. We're going to move into 2 Samuel. Jonathan has already died. Um, McCall is still in the picture. Uh, Jonathan has already died. And it turns out that Jonathan had a child, um, a kid named Mephibosheth. And he, uh, through an accident when he was little, becomes crippled. And there's this one moment in the story where John, or David excuse me, inquires about whether there's anyone left in Jonathan's household. And he becomes aware of this, uh, this child who had been um, – he, who can't walk from, uh, from this accident. And David opens up the royal table. David at this point is finally king. And he opens up the royal table and invites Mephibosheth to it. And I think it's such a beautiful scene of David using his royal power and prerogative to welcome in the someone who wouldn't be at that table. He literally opens the table to someone on the margins. And it's a I wanted to just kind of get your take on that part of the story because we often don't talk about it. It's a story that we skip over typically. I don't think it's in the lectionary even, but it's so yeah. great. It's the high point of David for me. Yeah. Well, I, I think um Maybe maybe that's a redeeming part of of David. We're not knowing how he feels about Jonathan and Michal. That that he is able to look back and see how people cared for him. And now I want to reciprocate mm. that. Um, I, I, someone was that for me, and so how can I be that for someone someone else? That's the first thought I think of. Is he's going looking to reciprocate that caregiving? And I and especially since for political purposes, anyone from Jonathan's line is or could technically be yeah, David's rival. In fact, there had been a rival king set up. That's right. Uh, and Ishbaal. Ishbaal. And, you, you know, so this is, it's a complicated thing. But what I what I love is going back to 1 Samuel 18, um, there's this really beautiful picture where the author says, and Jonathan stripped himself of his mm. robe and of mm. his armor and even of his sword. Mm. And he lays down all of these weapons and he gives them over to David in this this gesture of, yeah. you know, you are, you know, we are together. We are, mm. um, this is this is love. And so here, like you said, he's inviting him to the table and he's laying down this armor in a sense. You know, he's putting down 
Um, you know, we, we talk about beating swords into plowshares in right, Isaiah, right. but here we really see this, we're putting away the sword. Yeah. You know, where th- you don't have to be my enemy yeah. Um, yeah. just because people place us in these particular camps. So beautiful. Yeah. Because there's so much vulnerability. Yeah. In the in the 18 text where Jonathan's yeah. taking everything off and everything laying off. at his feet. Yeah. And, and then how David's doing the same thing and opening the doors to uh, to someone who would be a threat, but but is in need. Yeah. Right? So I'll, so I'll help you out. And, and and that's the beautiful reciprocity of mm-hmm. caregiving in this text that David comes to embody what Jonathan had embodied for him this this human form of chesed this covenant loyalty and isn't that a beautiful call to us as disciples to say like first of all who are those people we need to name in our story who have been those caretakers of you as you both have done so beautifully but then how can we then go and and reciprocate that whether it's back to your spouses but also to the world yeah. that needs caregiving so so desperately yeah. if not now uh, more than ever before so well friends thank you for this conversation it's yeah. so good to chat with you and to dig into these stories it's good.